Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Well, good morning, Emmanuel Faith. It's great to see you. If you're worshiping with us online, we're really grateful that you are here as well. As you can maybe see to my right, your left, we have our baptismal out and we are going to celebrate, I believe it's five baptisms at the end of our service today. So we are in for a treat and what a great time of worship together. Amen. Um, Some of you are are probably still on Facebook and you know that um, Facebook gives you memories every once in a while, right? And they will sort of show you what you were doing or a picture you posted or a story you posted on that same day, maybe years earlier. And I had that experience this week as I logged in and sort of pulled up my Facebook, a memory popped up of two years ago, May of 2020. See, in in May of 2020, uh, my family and I, we got a yellow lab puppy. We were part of the COVID puppy friends to the glory of God, right? And um, our puppy's name was Willard, aptly named after Dallas Willard. And this was the memory that popped up. It said, C.S. Lewis and Willard, it's a good morning, exclamation point. Well, we got Willard on May 4th, and on June 3rd, he was stung by a bee and died a few hours later. Some of you have heard that story, and what you probably haven't heard was that after he got stung and died, I went into full-on obsessive-compulsive dad mode. And here's here's what dad mode looked like for me for the next literally two months. I was scouring websites to try to find a yellow lab puppy. And I had some crazy thoughts like, hey, we're driving to Colorado on vacation and it's not all that far to swing by Arizona on the way there to pick up a puppy or even just a few hour detour into Utah. Or once we get to Colorado, we could keep going to Nebraska and there's a puppy on a farm out there that could be ours. And I, and I was, I went into full on, there is pain in our life. And as a dad, it is my job to solve it mode. Anybody been there? Where you've just sensed that there was something that was present in your life that you needed to get beyond in order to continue to move forward. And I think if we zoom out, all of us would probably say we've had those moments, those times in our life where we've thought something like that. I I call it the if onlys of our lives, right? If only this dog hadn't died or if only we could get a new one, then all of the pain that we're walking through would subside. If we could just change that circumstance or that situation, then everything else would change along with it. The if onlys in our lives might look like if that dream job comes through, then my life will be complete. If my health turns around, then, then I will be okay. If that boyfriend or girlfriend finally proposes, then life can start moving forward. If fill in the blank gets elected, then we will move forward, right? And we do the same thing as as disciples of Jesus, if that's, if that's who you are this morning, my guess is you've had similar thoughts in your life of discipleship. The if-onlys in the life of discipleship might look something like, if only they would start loving me, I would live out Jesus' command to love them. Right? That's all that needs to happen. And then we'd be off and running. If only I lived in the 1950s or in a different state, then I could follow Jesus. If only. 
If only this deep pain that I've walked through, that's very real, by the way, could be resolved, could be worked out, could be worked through, then, then I could start going. I could start growing. But see, here's the problem with the if onlys in life. What happens if it doesn't happen? What, happened, what happens if the if only doesn't come through? See, I think what happens then is we hit pause. We hit pause on living. We hit pause on growing. We hit pause on practicing the way of Jesus together. And we assume that if only that happens, then I will be able to grow and then I will be able to go. But until then, life's on pause. And what Paul wants to do is he wants to write to the Corinthian believers, and I believe he wants to address the if-onlys in life with them. So if you have your Bible, will you open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Many of you who've been with us know that we're in an almost year-long series in the letter of 1 Corinthians. We're calling this season of that series Sacred Sexuality, and I just want to tell you that uh, at the onset of our time that today's message doesn't applied directly to sexuality, but it's in a section where Paul's talking about that. And last week we talked about marriage and divorce and remarriage. And our big idea last week was that God always meets us where we are, not where we should be. Remember that? How many of you are grateful for that truth? Unless you think you're always where you should be, you should be grateful for this truth, right? And so Paul's going to pick up that line of thinking, and he's going to start writing to first century followers of Jesus in Corinth, who by way of reminder are coming out of the pagan world. Their lives are absolute chaos. In many ways, their church is absolute chaos. And they are stepping out of that world as a first generation group of Christians in their city. It's hard for us to imagine the kind of lives that they're walking out of and the kind of baggage that they are walking with. So they've become a new creation in Christ, that they've been made new, but then they're dropped right back into their old system of life. Anybody been there? They've been made new and dropped back into something that was old. And it seems as though the followers of Jesus in Corinth start to ask the question, Jesus, you've changed me, but what do I need to change about my life in order to follow you? And they started to come up with a whole list of, oh, if only, if only we could change, fill in the blank, then we could start following. Jesus. And Paul wants to write, and he wants to address that lie that was leading so many astray. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 17. Are you there? Listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote. He said this, only let, say it with me, Emmanuel Faith, each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, to which God has called him. This is my rule, Paul says, in all the churches. So he's going, hey, this isn't just for you, Corinth. Like, you could apply this anywhere. Emmanuel Faith in 2022, you could apply this right here today. And listen to what Paul does at the very onset. He says, each person has a different journey, 
different passions, different experiences, a different pathway that you have walked to get to this point where you are today. And I think what Paul's subtly saying is that Christianity is not some sort of conveyor belt, cookie cutter religion where you just step into it and you are popped out of the conveyor belt and everybody looks the exact same. No, you have a wiring, you have passions, you have things that have gone on in your life that have happened that are a part of your journey. And what Paul wants to say to the Corinthian church is each person has a history that they bring into this space. And that's really, really important because you aren't called to live somebody else's life. Amen? You aren't called to run somebody else's race. In fact, listen to the way that the author of Hebrews put it. He said this, let us run the race with endurance, the race that is set out before whom? For us. The race that's set out before you, that's the race you're called to run. And I don't know about you, but what I've noticed is that when we start to run our race, we immediately start to look to the sides and go, how are they running? What, what are they doing? What's, what's, what's working for them and maybe just maybe it'll work for me. And then, then we have well-intentioned people on the sides of us that go, hey, here's what worked for me. It'll certainly work for you. Here's what we did with schooling. It, it's a slam dunk. If you do it, it'll work. Here's how we did it in our marriage. If you do it, it'll sure work. Here, here's how it looks in our family. If you do it, it'll sure work. And by the way, you should probably just become a pastor or a missionary because I'm sure that's what God wants for you. And we start to sort of take on, maybe even subtly, these, these formulas that have worked for other people. And I think what Paul would say and the author of Hebrews would say is, no, 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 you're not called to run somebody else's race. So the fact that you're comparing yourselves to other people to measure your progress and measure your growth, like maybe that's not the best thing for you. There was this... Um, Great book that was written recently entitled Stretch by Scott Sossenshine. And in it, he did this study. And what he found was that if you were to stand and look over your fence at the grass of your neighbor on the other side of the fence, here's what you would find. That quite literally, because of the perspective you are looking with, the grass appears to be literally greener on the other side of the fence. And in it, he writes about the fact that we so often compare ourselves and we live by this adage, the grass is greener on the other side. And if I applied their formula to my life, certainly it would work with my life. And maybe they have more joy and more happiness and more productivity. And I want all of that. So I'm just going to do what they're doing. And Paul says, stop. That's not your race. That's not your race. And so you might go, well, how do we figure out what our race is? Uh, how do we figure out, verse 17, what God has assigned and what God has called us to? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. Because verse 20, he addresses that quite directly. Here's what he says. Each one should, say it with me, Emmanuel Faith, remain in the condition in which he was called. So here's what Paul says to the Corinthian church. You want to know God's assignment and God's calling for your life? What were you up to when he called you? What, what was your economic status? What was your social status? What was your marital status? Like, what, what did God 
call you? How did God call you? What was the situation that you were walking in right then? Now, now, I know that some of you are starting to think through some of the implications of that, right? And you're going, well, what if what I was doing when God called me isn't something that's like moral or ethical or good? I know some of you guys got some shady backgrounds, right? <laughs> what about what about then? I just want to remind you, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul said to the Christians in Corinth, hey, like, you shouldn't sleep with prostitutes anymore now that you've become a follower of Jesus. This does not nullify that command, just so we're clear, all right? So he's calling them out in order to call them forward. I think what he would say is your past is not a license to continue to sin. But... But it is also not a call to change everything. See, God wants to meet us exactly where we are. And when we start comparing ourselves, like, listen, whoever the Joneses were in first century Corinth, they were alive and well. And they are alive and well in our lives too. But what if, what if God wants to meet us, not somewhere else, but right where we are? Not in a fantasy someday, but in reality today. And what if we can start following Jesus right where we are? That's what Paul says in verse 20. And the big idea we're circling around this morning is the reality that your current circumstances are God's divine calling. You want to know where God's called you and what he's assigned you to? Look around. Look around. God's calling begins where you are, as you are. You do not need to wait until you're somewhere else or your circumstances change. And Paul is saying to his readers, there is, and hear me on this, Emmanuel Faith, there is no life circumstance that could come your way that could prevent you from following the way of Jesus. Nothing. Nothing. I love the way that Charles Spurgeon put it, and here's what he said. He said, whatever God has made your position, your work, abide in that. Unless you are quite sure that he calls you to something else. Let your first care be to glorify God to the utmost of your power where you are. Fill your present sphere with praise. Oh, come on. Somebody say amen. amen. I, think, I think that's a word for someone to fill your present sphere and maybe even your present pain with praise. If he needs you in another, he will show you that. I love you. I love that. Axiomatically, we might phrase it, bloom where you're planted. And I think that's really important for us because we only have a certain amount of energy in our life. And we can either use that energy playing the if only game, if only this was different, if only they treated me differently, if only that pain wasn't present, if only I had that job, if only I lived in that neighborhood. We can either use our energy playing the if only game or we can use our energy following the way of Jesus. But I don't think we have enough energy for both. And that's what Paul is challenging his first century readers to step into. And it's what he's challenging us to do as well. You know, it's interesting. As I read through the Gospels, there is a, are a number of occasions where Jesus will call somebody, somebody like Peter, for example, and he'll say, follow me. And Peter drops all the nets and he's like, I'm in. I'm following. And it seems to me that we, we sort of formulize that encounter and we go, that's how it works for everybody. And yet that wasn't how it worked for everybody. There was a man who was 
possessed by demons. So many demons that his name was Legion. And Jesus came up and he healed him. He he drove the demons out. And the man says to Jesus, I want to leave everything and follow you. And to that we'd go, well, that sounds like what everybody's supposed to do. And Jesus goes, hold on there, buddy. I'm not sure what his name was after the driving out of demons, but sure his name got changed. Not going by Legion anymore. And listen to their encounter. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away. Like what? Saying, return to your, where? Your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. He's going, I'm ready to change everything to follow you, Jesus. And Jesus says to him, pause. I've changed everything in you, but I'm putting you right back in the situation that you came from to declare my glory right there. Yeah, it's not as romantic. It's not as adventurous. It doesn't feel as extreme. But it's the invitation of Jesus for him. I think it's the invitation for Jesus, from Jesus, for many of us today too. But let's just acknowledge at the onset that some of our if-onlys are really deep-seated pain and deep-seated hurt and probably some failures and probably some regrets and some things that got off course in some pretty big ways. And so when we go, God, if only this could be taken away or this could be changed or that could be removed, when our prayer is if only, usually it is something that's really, really painful that we would love to get out of our life. But what if, what if, what if the situations we most want to change are often the circumstances that catalyze growth? Because my guess is you would look back over your life and you would go, yes and amen to that. Anybody want a yes and amen to that? Yeah, these are the, the things that we would most love to get rid of in our life are actually the things that God builds on to shape us and form us into the people he's inviting us to become. What I've noticed about my life is that I will often pray, God, get me out of this. Get me out of this pain, this pain of, you know, a puppy that just died, right? Get me out of this pain of things that are just challenging with our kids. Get me out of this pain. And I don't know about you, but the way God usually answers my get me out of this pain is by saying no. But I will walk you through this pain. And I see that all throughout the scriptures. I see that in, in, in the life of Hagar that we talked about a few weeks ago, where she's, she's longing to get out and God says, I'll get you through. I see that in the nation of Israel where they're longing to get out of Egypt and into the promised land. And he goes, yeah, I'll I'll get you through the wilderness 40 years. I I see that in the life of the Israelites where they're going, we're in exile for 70 years. God, get us out of exile. And what God says is, I will get you through. I will get you through before I get you out. And when God gets us through, we are always stronger and better for it. So maybe, just maybe, the if-onlys are the catalyst to become the people that God is inviting us to become. So Paul sets forth this principle in verse 17 and verse 20. And then he starts to drill down into two situations that were very real 
for the first century followers of Jesus in Corinth, and I think they apply to us as well. Here's what he said, verse 18. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anybody at the time, at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. Now, you just need to know that in the first century, there was a group of, of Jewish people called Judaizers who were going around and they were telling Gentile converts that they had to be circumcised in order to become real followers of Jesus. So have this surgery and then you'll be in, okay? And then there were people in the Roman Empire who were, going, who were undergoing minor surgical procedures, which, can we all agree that there's no such thing as a minor surgical procedure in the first century? Especially not in that region. Like, let's just, let's just all admit, like, we can call it minor, but I'm guessing they didn't, right? Minor surgical procedures to make them appear uncircumcised. Yeah, ow. That, that's devotion. That's devotion. And Paul goes, yeah, it might be devotion, but verse 19, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Here's Paul's point. That mattered in the old covenant. It was the sign of the covenant between God and Israel. But we are in a new day. We are under a new covenant. And he's not down on circumcision. He's just saying, it's irrelevant. You can be circumcised or not circumcised. It's irrelevant. It doesn't change your standing before God. It's not what God's looking for. He's not looking for external conformity to some religious formula. That's not what he's looking for. What's he looking for? Well, he's inviting us to keep the, what? Commandments of God. Because what's easier? Being circumcised or carrying out the commandments of God? I would argue it's easier to just go in and have a surgery. Sure, it's more painful in the short run, but what does it really require of you? Don't answer that. That's a hypothetical. Your, your heart attitude doesn't need to change at all. It's just a mark that happens on your body. See, circumcision is a symbol of religious conformity, jumping through the right hoops to make sure God goes, bravo. And there are all sorts of ways that this happens in the modern world. Things like pray five times a day facing a certain direction, or go door to door and share your faith with everybody. Or give 10% to your church. Not if you want to, but give us your routing number, bank routing number so that we know you are tithing 10%. Or fast for an entire month or attend church every single day. Those aren't necessarily bad things, but when they become legalistic and we try to do them in order to earn something from God, they have zero power in the life of the believer. Because the truth of the matter, friends, is that Jesus is interested in your internal transformation, not your external conformity. And so, what does that look like in this if-only scenario that Paul's addressing? I think this is what it looks like for us. To focus our energy on obeying Jesus, not religious conformity. Religious conformity is easier than following Jesus. It is. Check boxes, did that, done that, yes, right on. But we can read in the book of Amos, God speaking through the prophet Amos in chapter 5, where God looks at the nation of Israel and he goes, I, I hate your religious festivals. 
I'm not neutral towards them. I actually despise it when you get together and you sing your songs and you go through the motions. Why? Because your hearts are far from me. You don't care about justice in the world. You're just going through the motions of religion. And God essentially says to the Israelites, I'm over it. I'm over it. Because it's not about religious conformity. It is about obedience to the way of Jesus. And you might be wondering, okay, well, obey what? (laughs) Obey what? Because the commands of God is a pretty big category, Paul. He addressed almost the exact same thing in writing to the church at Galatia. And listen to what he said in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. He said, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for how much? Anything. Does this sound familiar? Okay, it should. But only faith working through what? Through love. Only faith working through love. Now this word counts in the Greek quite literally means carries with it power. Has power. So here's how we might rephrase it or we might insert that into the passage. The only thing that has power in and through our lives is faith that expresses itself in love. It's the only thing that counts. That's the only thing that matters. And you know what's interesting about that? There's no if only that could prevent you from loving. None. Now, let's be honest. There are some if onlys that can make it more challenging to love. You can say amen to that and you don't need to elbow anybody, right? There are some if onlys that can make it more challenging to love, but there is nothing that could come into your life that can prevent you from loving someone else. Nothing any, anybody does to you on the freeway? Nothing anybody does to you in the drop-off line at school. God help us all. <laughs> right? Nothing anybody does to you in a relationship. Nothing anybody says about you or a rumor that they spread about you. There is nothing that anybody can do to you that can prevent you from loving them. And, and this was, I was writing this sermon this week, and, and one of my kids had a really, really hard week at school, and, and somebody pushed him up against the wall and punched him in the stomach and, and just had a terrible day. And I'm like going through all these things in my mind that I'd love to do to this kid (laughs) that weren't loving. I'm just going to throw that out there. It wasn't like, how can I bless this kid? (laughs) And then I'm writing this and my own words are echoing in the back of my heart, right? Ryan, there's nothing he can do that prevents you from not being able to love him can make it more challenging, and he did. (laughs) Here's what I noticed about me and what you might notice about your own journey, is that I have a subtle narrative of circumstantial obedience. God, I'll obey as long as they do fill in the blank. I'll, I'll love her as long as she loves me back. I'll bless them as long as they bless me. I'll live out your command to love, which, by the way, is the only thing that counts, as long as they do. Man, 
that's the if only discipleship killer. Spoiler alert, they're never going to come through exactly the way you want them to. So we have to decide, is our life perpetually going to be on pause? Or will we step into the power of obeying the way of Jesus and loving those around us? Like, what if we started to love those unlike us and those who don't like us? We, we might just do what the, the first church did and just start to transform the world. In fact, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, his sort of paramount teaching said something that's just so deeply challenging that we often relegate it to the power of, well, we're just supposed to read this and know that we can't do it and so we need God's grace. Praise God, we need God's grace, but we need God's grace to live this out, not to ignore it. Here's what Jesus said. He said, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It was a command, it wasn't an idea. Like, do it, so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Jesus says, you want to be like your Father who loves you. Love those who don't like you. That's what counts. That's how your life has power. And that's how you become more and more like Jesus. And that's God's calling right where you are. You don't need to change your address to live that out. Second thing, here's what he says next. He says, were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. If you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. Now, just a quick timeout. This word bondservant in many translations is translated as, anybody have it? Slave, right? So, I mean, we read Paul. Listen, if you're a slave, don't be concerned about it. Like, what? I don't, I don't know. I have about 100 questions for Paul. Like, if we're not concerned about that, what would we be concerned about? That's one of the questions. And it sounds strange and even maybe offensive to us as 21st century readers. Here's two things that we need to keep in mind and that we need to know. First, when Paul is writing in the Roman Empire, their version of slavery is a lot different than what we normally think of as slavery. We might think of it more as like indentured servanthood or or a work relationship between an employee and an employer. To the extent that even when slaves in the first century were able to purchase their freedom, which they were, many would say, no, I'd like to stay and I'd like to serve right here, right where I'm at. Paul will address that in just a few moments. But I think it's right for us to ask, Like, why wouldn't the Bible just try to deal the death blow to slavery? Like, why not take a strong abolitionist stance and put a stake in the ground so that people couldn't misuse the Bible to perpetuate an evil and broken system for years and years and years? Like, why not do that? I think that's a fair question. Dr. Blumberg, one of the the best Greek professors alive today, put it like this in his commentary on 1 Corinthians. He said, Paul like Jesus, was concerned primarily with fashioning a countercultural community of disciples who did not directly challenge the state, but who modeled better lifestyles for a watching world. So here's what he's saying. He's saying that Christianity is a tiny institution in the Roman Empire. Slavery is a massive 
economic force. And any attempt to directly and outright oppose slavery would have been counterproductive and would have been smashed absolutely immediately. So instead, here's what Paul does. Instead, he sows the seeds of a revolution that would only grow to be fruitful decades and decades later. But it is exactly what he does. And listen to the way that he goes on. Verse 22. He wrote, For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant, as a bondservant is a free man of the Lord. Oh, what a beautiful nuance that Paul's pointing out. E- even if you were a slave when you're called, you're free. And then he goes on and he says, likewise, he who was free when he's called is actually a bondservant of Christ. You're free? Great. You're actually not. You're a slave to Christ. Verse 23, you were bought at a price. Do not become bondservants of Men. Here's Paul's challenge to the Corinthian believers and to us is to concentrate our energy on our spiritual identity rather than our social standing. And that's exactly what bondservant versus free person was. It was a social standing. And he is claiming, he's claiming definitively that where one falls in regards to their social hierarchy and pecking order that society deems appropriate is absolutely irrelevant in comparison to the magnitude and the glory of what we have in Christ. That's Paul's point. He's going, you, you were bought at a price that the King of Kings and Lord of Lords shed his blood for you, died for you, and was risen for you, forgave all of your sins. And so he goes, what, the most important thing about you is not whether or not you're a bondservant or whether or not you're free. The most important thing about you is that you have been called off of the blocks of sin, death, and evil by the one who gave his life for you. And spend your time thinking about that, not whether, whether or not you're a bondservant or you're a free person. He says, that's what you should, quote unquote, concern yourself with. It would be like standing on the edge of a Grand Canyon, on the edge of the Grand Canyon and picking up a pebble and obsessing over the pebble when the grandeur of God's creation is right in front of you. You You want to play that game of who's at which spot in the social hierarchy, who's got the bigger house or the better car or the better job or the notoriety or the fame or whatever we want to fill in the blank with that matters in our society and our cultural moment. We want to play the if only game, but every time we play the if only game, we pick up the pebble and obsess over it and miss the reality that we are loved by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So here's it. Don't, please don't miss this, friends. I don't care whether you're rich or poor, whether you drive a great car or you took the bus here. I don't care if you live in the projects or if you live in paradise. None of it matters compared to the fact that we have been bought, purchased, and sealed by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We're on equal footing here at the foot of the cross. And Jesus has purchased 
everything for us. And I love that Paul would say to those who are enslaved, no, 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 actually, you are free. It's for freedom that Christ has set you free. And to those who are free, he would say, no, not so fast. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but the life I live through faith, I live in the body by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what Paul would say. To the person who's free, he would go, you're actually a slave of Christ. To the person who is a slave or bondservant, he would say, you are actually free. So here's my question. In what sense can Paul say that? That that those who are slaves are actually free. Here's what he's doing. He's drilling deeper down and he's saying there's something bigger that's going on in our world than what we can just see with our eyes. In fact, in Romans chapter six, he would say this, you have been set free from sin, slavery to sin earlier in chapter six, and have become slaves to righteousness. And see, here's his point. We are all bond servants of something or someone. We are all serving something or someone. The question isn't, are you a slave? It's what are you a slave to? And does what you are enslaved to set you free or bring you into bondage? Does it lead you into life or does it lead you to death? And his point is that there is immense freedom in saying yes to Jesus, not if only, but saying yes period to Jesus is the most freedom that a person could experience. Author, pastor, commentator, Sam Storms put it like this, the freest person in the world is a man or woman who lives as a slave of Christ. We might put it like this, that we are most free when we are fully surrendered. So let me ask you, do you know that kind of freedom? Do you know the kind of freedom that sets you Free from thinking that you have to earn something from God. The slavery of religion. Do you know that kind of freedom? The grace and mercy that comes and flows through the cross and through the resurrection straight to you based on none of your own merit but on everything that Christ has done for you. That's freedom. No hoops to jump through. No checklists to perform. That's Freedom. And do you know the freedom of looking around and saying, I live for an audience of one? I'm not trying to climb that social ladder and make my bank account or my status look a certain way, but the freedom that comes from saying, I am my beloved's and he is mine. I, I want that freedom for you. And it only comes through faith in Christ. Listen to the way Paul ends this section. I love this because you could go back and read verse 20 and he's going to quote verse 20 almost exactly and then add two little words that are the if only changers in every life. So brothers, whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. As if to say, were you rich or poor? Married or divorced, bondservant or free, 
Are, are you playing the if only game? Like if only I could get that out of the way, then I would be okay. If only I could heal, if only this circumstance or this situation changed, then I would be okay. Are you, are you playing that game? And what he says is, no, 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 no. The whole game has changed because right where you are, right as you are, God is with you. And that's a game changer because the Savior who's with you is more important than the situation before you. Somebody say amen. Amen. So you may have walked in here today thinking if only, (laughs) if only they would come around, if only this could be repaired, if only that job came through, if only I could heal from this pain, if only, and really what I'm pointing out for you is your life has been on pause until today because you don't need to play the if only situation anymore. The Savior is with you regardless of your situation. And that changes everything. You can follow now right where you are, right as you are right now. You don't need to go anywhere else. And nothing else in your life has to change in order for you to say, I will follow. And when you say that, it changes everything. Let's pray. Let me just pause for a moment and invite you to ask the Spirit of God to just bring to your consciousness, to bring to your head and your heart what he would have you take away from today and what he would have you hear and and practice this week in real life. So would you just ask him, what's for you? What maybe, what if onlys have you been carrying? And what's the invitation he's giving? Would you ask him? So, Father, we would bring our whole heart before you today, asking you to search us and know us and then show us what you see. If there's any ways that we are holding back from following you more wholeheartedly and experiencing the joy and love and goodness that you are pouring out over us, would you open our eyes to that? And, Lord, our desire is not to have the if-onlys of life paralyze us, to have the faith in you that catalyzes us and allows us to grow and to become the people that you're inviting us to become. We'd hold this all before you and ask, would you lead and guide in Jesus' name? And all God's people together say, amen, amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.